Hello, and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm your host, Mike Wahlberg, and in this episode, I'm joined by Samara Cohen. Now, if you have an interest in ETFs, you have come to the right place today, as I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a better informed source than Samara. Samara is Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer of ETF Index Investments for BlackRock, where at about $5 trillion, she oversees the world's largest such product offering. It's also fully half of BlackRock's $10 trillion of AUM. Samara is what's called a BlackRock boomerang, as she started her career there in institutional client and returned in 2015 after 16 years at Goldman Sachs, where she worked on interest rate strategies and later went on to become COO of Fixed Income, Currencies and Commodities Americas Sales. At BlackRock, in addition to her CIO duties, the first such role in the firm's ETF business, Samara serves on committees covering boat issues, global operations, and the investment subcommittee for the Global Executive Group. She is also a senior advocate for the Black Professionals Network. Welcome, Samara. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Now, Samara, we we had a chance to catch up last week before our taping today, and at that point, you were headed to see Top Gun with your family. Now, before I pick your brain on your considerable knowledge of ETFs and index products, my first questions for you today are, was Top Gun any good? And what sorcery is Tom Cruise up to? Is he mostly silly putty and CGI? So, Mike, I have no comment on the second question, but in answer to the first, I say absolutely, it is good. You should go see it. And it's pretty surprising that 36 years later, they did an actual sequel versus or a remake. And it's really good. I think it's as good as the first. So I definitely recommend. Wow. Yeah, that was going to be my question. If it's how does it stack up to the first? So that's high praise indeed. It's great. All right. So let's let's get into it here, Samara. So I'd like to start with a trip down memory lane. Now, ETFs have come a long way from the early days of just pure index replication. So can you talk a little bit about the evolution that ETFs have gone through during your career? Absolutely. And and even preceding my my career to, to go back in history a bit more, the first index investment product was created in 1971. And, you know, no coincidence, it was actually the first year that the first commercial microchip was released. And really, advances in technology and computing were prerequisites to index portfolio management, if only to provide price inputs and the things we take for granted in managing portfolios really weren't accessible to manage a broad index of securities in 1971 until advances in personal computing. And in 1971, it was very specific to the most transparent, accessible, publicly traded U.S. equities. So that was the first index investment product. Fast forward to the first ETF, which happened uh, not in the United States, actually, in Canada in 1990, which took the index product and made it, uh, Top Gun, of course, was somewhere in between the two, but the ETF took the index product and made it tradable on exchange. So that was a huge step forward in advancing the access to index product. And both of those things, the index strategy and the ETF have progressed in the you know 22 years since that first ETF both in providing access to 
a broader set of markets, including non-equity markets, such as commodities and fixed income, and increasing tradability and access to those markets on exchanges. So it has been a you know pretty dramatic set of impacts on the investment management industry, really starting with the index product and then moving into the, the ETF. And, and I guess I'll leave you with, again, since you asked about my career, as you said in the intro, my career prior to coming back to BlackRock in, in 2015, BlackRock was my first job out of college, but I was at Goldman for the 16 years in between. I was in the fixed income market. And in 2014, on the trading floor, the fixed income trading floor at Goldman, nobody really knew what an ETF was. They were equity securities, except unless you know people traded them in their PAs. Now, in 2022, you can't have a credible conversation around dynamics in the bond market without understanding fixed income ETF flows and trading. And so I think the increased integration of ETFs into the overall fabric of capital markets around the world is really where we are today. That's that's a great segue for my, my next question here, Samara, because I, I did want to get into a little bit of kind of the more... Uh, not, not. I wouldn't even call them esoteric now, but just like beyond the index product and, and ways that investors are using these ETFs. So, so talk specifically about active ETFs, something that might maybe sound like a contradiction in terms for for the uninitiated. So, can you explain exactly what active ETFs are and and how investors are using them? Absolutely. And certainly not esoteric. Since 2020, more than half of ETFs launched in the United States have been act transparent active ETFs, meaning they seek to outperform a benchmark versus provide access to a specific benchmark or index methodology. And then, you know, unlike a traditional mutual fund, they have ETF characteristics. They can have tax benefits and they are tradable and visible intraday on exchange. The key turning point for active ETFs was 2019 in the U.S. when the SEC really clarified the rulebook for issuers to launch transparent active products. And since then, we've seen interest in doing so. And investors really buy them for the same reason that they would buy any sort of active strategy, uh, you know, adding to that the incremental benefits of, of the ETF, exchange tradability and tax benefits. Now, I will say a change for me five years ago uh, when we were starting to talk about active ETFs increasingly, there was a real question around investment managers would be comfortable with the transparency that is really foundational to all of these ETFs that have been launched. They publish holdings on a daily basis. So the question was, and the expectation was that actually there wouldn't be huge uptake because investment managers wouldn't want to give up their holdings on, on that frequent a basis. And I think what we've seen in the market is actually the opposite. Investors really put a premium on transparency and portfolio managers of these products have largely been comfortable with those rules of engagement. And so we have seen this ensuing uptake of these, you know, highly transparent active strategies. So so can you give us an example of, of what that might look like just for, for folks who are maybe just in maybe purely passive sort of S&P 500 units or, you know, active strategies? So like a thematic ETF might be what, like a cyber currency exposure or something like a little bit more specific? 
Well, I think the important, you know, thing I'd like to leave you with here is that there really is a spectrum of, I would say, and you'll never hear me use, by the way, the word passive, because I strongly believe there is nothing passive about managing an ETF and index book. And I say this from, from firsthand experience, but in terms of strategy, there's a real spectrum from index to alpha seeking active and a lot of variations in between. I think in the you know very first iterations of, of index and also in ETFs, it was, like you said, very standard market cap weighted index methodologies like S&P 500. And then they progressed into more sophisticated index methodologies, whether they were targeting a specific universe, like any sort of thematic ETFs, coming up with non-cap weighted, we call the universe of non-cap weighted indexes, alt weighted indexes, and there's a broad variety of them, such as factors, such as volatility constrained. And of course, increasingly, there is a spectrum of uh, ESG products as well. But none of those actually get to what I think you're asking about with respect to active, because that whole spectrum, which might be index strategies designed to outperform a market cap weighted parent benchmark, they are still rules-based index methodologies. So beyond that is really discretionary management, where a manager of any sort of strategy, such as a, you know international small cap equity strategy, seeks alpha to outperform the benchmark, but not in a rules-based published way. They do so at their discretion. They can still now in the U.S. wrap their strategy as an ETF, and it can be tradable on exchange. They are publishing their holdings on a daily basis, as with any ETF, but those holdings aren't necessarily predictable in the way they would be with an index strategy. But the index strategies, and, and we call this effect convergence, where there is increasing convergence between active and, and standard index with these more sophisticated and more complex index methodologies. So from an operational perspective, a lot goes on behind the scenes from between when an ETF is first imagined to when it's traded. So can you talk a bit about the importance of the ETF ecosystem and comment particularly on how that ideally performs in times like now when we're in periods of high volatility? The reason I never use the word passive, as I said before, is exactly that, Mike, because so much goes into delivering investment performance in the context of, of an ETF and an index portfolio. And, and from my perspective, this is way beyond operational, which I think is table stakes for investment portfolios. So I think of, and I think it's a reasonable question to ask, like, what is investment performance in the context of an ETF? And to us, it's two parts. It's precision of delivering the index outcome, which particularly as we get into more evolved index strategies is a uh, non-trivial matter. You know, particularly last you know, week, we went through a, a major rebalance of the MSCI factor indexes and rebalancing index portfolios, particularly in a volatile, you know, risk off, risk on type of market environment, ensuring necessary liquidity provision, minimizing market impact around the close. These are the things that go into that first aspect of investment performance which we call precision. And then the second piece is 
ETF market quality. And this is where the ETF ecosystem really comes into play. What are investors' expectations? How do they think about performance with respect to the ETF? Yes, it is precision of the index outcome, but it is also a lot of market characteristics such as on-exchange trading spreads, volumes, the presence of a an options and lending ecosystem. So we do a lot of work explicitly with those external ecosystem participants, such as market makers, exchanges, who are going to determine an investor's experience of holding that ETF beyond the precision of index performance that the portfolio manager delivers. And to your question on market volatility, I think, you know, I like to think of myself as a real student of highly volatile markets. I've been around for many of them in my, you know, more than 20 years as a as an investment uh, professional i think you know what we have seen generally and definitely with respect to the bond market that etfs have actually been a source of added resilience to markets because of their exchange tradability um, and transparency and and access and so you know i'll give you a uh, a quick example we saw in um you know the beginning of this year at the beginning of, of 2022 in february where the market was really being jolted by some of the inflation data that was coming out we had some days where investment grade etfs would trade in the context of 90,000 times on exchange while the underlying bonds might trade only uh, 30 times if we looked at the top 10 holdings. And so what happened then was kind of a virtuous cycle with the ETF providing an important kind of visible price point and being used by fixed income investors and trading desks to manage their risks and provide transparency into their portfolios. So I think the resilience of ETFs in stressed markets, particularly in markets that have matured significantly over the past decade, like the bond market has been quite significant. And, and even across equity markets, I mean, you've, you, obviously another use for it is hedging active trading. Absolutely. So, you know, perhaps that's providing a little bit of a cushion there when, you know, a little bit of a backup plan there when things don't go as, as planned. You know, I should add to your earlier question around active ETFs, an interesting, you know, maybe not broadly known fact is that some of the biggest uptake of ETFs over the past couple of years has been their use in portfolios by active portfolio managers, where they compare the ETF to any sort of other market access vehicle, such as a future or a swap, and the ETF becomes part of their toolkit for their core beta exposure, allowing them to you know, equitize cash, substitute for derivatives, particularly in expensive funding markets, and kind of create the capacity for them to direct their capital towards their core conviction security positions. So, so to your point, they've been a broad part of the, the toolkit across asset classes. Yeah, and you can port that alpha around if you can get your beta exposure for the underlying. Exactly. Turning our eye to the future here, I'm curious to know what BlackRock sees as ETF's growth potential going forward and where that might come from. Like, what do you see as the next stage of ETF's evolution? Well, we continue to think that there is a lot of room, a lot of runway for ETFs in the global bond market. You know, ETFs are probably call it 10% of of global equities and, you know, 1 or 2% of the global bond market. And we're seeing 
a very accelerated adoption by by bond investors. So I think, you know, number one, fixed income ETFs is absolutely a place where there's growth. And then, you know, lifting up from any specific asset class, we would estimate that about 100 million or 120 million investors at the end of 2020 were accessing our ETF and indexing capabilities. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about what's the product suite and what's the ecosystem necessary to support the next 100 million. And so I think, you know, right now, particularly as we look at this environment of inflation concerns, divergent monetary policy, various degrees of pricing pressure across uh, different countries and, and global economies, the broad product set and the ability to create core building blocks for investors around the world to construct, you know, whatever the portfolio is that that they need for their financial futures and and goals. That's what we think is important, really, to to to, to get that next uh, to meet the needs of the next hundred million investors. If I may, I'd like to play devil's advocate for a moment, Samara. ETFs have experienced explosive growth, as we know, especially over the last 10 years, to the point where over half of U.S. equity holdings are now in passive strategies. This has been a boon for investors who've gained access to low-cost market exposure, as well as the providers. And I'm curious about your thoughts about a potential downside of the rise of passive, namely that when capital is allocated based on the size of existing market constituents, rather than the outlook for the fundamentals of those constituents, that there might be an impairment somehow to that capital allocation process. How do you think about this? And is there a natural limit to the size of the market? How do we know when we get there? There probably is a natural limit. We are nowhere near it. And I say this uh, with the greatest respect for active investors. I am married to a fantastic active investor. So I have the strong view that index and active are, are a part of the you know same ecosystem that hopefully will bring more and more people around the world into investing for the long term. But to start, let's just level set on the facts and the data. I gave the number 10%. And to be very specific, that was ETFs and US market cap. I think when we are talking about price formation, it's very important to focus on total market cap. Sometimes numbers that get thrown around are managed assets where, and again, you will never hear me use the word passive, but to be conservative as we talk about price formation, I think we want to talk about ETF and index combined. ETF and index combined is probably half of managed assets but 25% of total U.S. market cap, and that number goes down much lower if we look at total U.S. equity market cap. If we look at global markets, equities, and and bonds, it is much more like 10%. But let's look at the high number, which is 25% in in U.S. equities. That's fact number one. I think the next fact to look at when considering price formation is how trading occurs. And what we know is there is much more velocity of trade in active strategies versus index strategies, probably 20 to 1. So again, in thinking about a saturation point, we are far from a place where index flows versus what we see from alpha-seeking active is informing prices. A specific statistic that we look at a lot at iShares in ETFs, and we've written about this, it's we, re- we actually publish the numbers every month and every quarter, is what we call imputed flow. 
And what imputed flow is, is it is the percentage of trading in a particular stock or index that can be ascribed to flows in and out of an ETF versus the trading that's happening, like absent those ETF and index flows. And that number, roughly speaking, varies from sector to sector, but averages around 5%. And interestingly, that number goes down in volatile markets because what happens in volatile markets is as as opposed to flows into and out of an ETF, we see a lot of secondary trading of the ETF on exchange where the underlying stocks actually don't change hands. So that imputed flow statistic also backs up that kind of active to index number of 20 to one, which we think is the useful number to look at. And it's important when particularly as issuers consider more concentrated indexes to consider the potential imputed flow in any particular index or strategy. So that's something that we watch closely. So look, from my perspective, I think when and we're far from reaching that saturation point, but there should be a point. There are many excellent active investors who fee-adjusted are delivering alpha, and that should be the number that really determines index versus active, that point at which you're getting the alpha on a fee-adjusted basis such that you know what you pay the manager warrants it. I think another thing the uh, the, the growth of ETFs and ETFs across strategies have done is given investors the ability to unbundle alpha from beta and what they're they're paying their managers and to determine if this is a manager who is really giving me index exposure wrapped as an active strategy. I don't want to pay for that. I want to pay for the index exposure. And so active managers are being held more accountable by the growth of indexation. But I think there is plenty of room for, for growth in both of them. Well, that's certainly been one of the great benefits of the rise of ETFs and index strategies is that it's it's forced a number of these closet indexers out into the sort of the glare of the sun where we can determine whether they're actually earning their fees and adding value over and above those benchmarks. So I, I'm going to, we're, we're coming to the end of our conversation here, Samara, unfortunately, but I do have one final sort of two-parter for you, and that's it's as follows. So what was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? Well, my first job out of college was at BlackRock. At the time, it was a fixed income portfolio management firm based only in New York City. What I remember most about my first day was how nervous I was, actually. But in you know thinking about that and 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 really trying to come up with something that that I couldn't just read in a book, but that would be kind of personal and specific to me, what I would have said to my first day of work self was that your career is going to be a marathon and not a sprint, and you will have the biggest impact if you treat it that way. And that would have been exciting to me on a couple of levels. First, if you told me after I graduated a college that I would even run a marathon, I'd be thrilled because I never considered myself an athlete and started running later in life. So that, that would have been a win. But the second piece is that in marathon training, really small improvements have a huge impact um, at the end of the day. And I think looking back early in my career, I was nervous and anxious about having the next big win. But really, a lot of the small things that I learned and improvements that I made and places that I participated added up over the course of a longer career to you know, do what it is I really think I, I come into work to do, which is to make markets better and safer and more transparent and accessible to investors. So that concept of 
celebrating and leaning into the the small milestones and the high impact that small improvements and changes can have over time, that would have been the advice I would have given to myself on the first day. Thanks very much for sharing your time with us today, Samara. I've been chatting today with Samara Cohen, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer of ETF and Index Investments for BlackRock. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets. <music>